Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. Looking at both the administration's rhetoric and its conversations with the Chinese and its actions, how would you characterize the approach so far. They are thinking about how to respond to China's actions across this full spectrum of of great power competition. And I think that includes economic components, security, obviously, and what we might call an ideational component. They are studying, I think, the Trump era policies on various executive orders and so on that the Trump administration put in place. The administration has said, well, we're reviewing those. One of the challenges we're facing is that we have what we might call surrogate strategies, where we're looking to other policy approaches uh, to try to avoid dealing directly with China. And so that includes, I think, this notion of domestic strengthening. In other words, if we put the money into our infrastructure, building semiconductor capacity in the U.S., uh, making sure we're leading technologically through um, some version of industrial policy, that almost that in and of itself will cause the Chinese to just run away. Their first and foremost objective, if you're the CCP and they're the ones uh, running the show and Xi Jinping is they want to stay in power. (laughs) And that's a domestic objective, but for them, their foreign policy uh, works around that. In some ways, this is an overstatement, but you'll get the point. Uh, China doesn't really have foreign policy per se. A lot of their foreign policy Mm. is is just extensions of domestic policy. And I actually think we're at risk of of mirroring that too much uh, with some of the statements the administration has made. Chris Johnson is a senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, a leading think tank here in Washington, D.C. Chris is one of our nation's premier China experts, having worked on the issue at both the Central Intelligence Agency and in the private sector for decades. Chris has been on our show many times before, and he joins us today to talk about the Biden administration's early steps on China policy. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our sponsor. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is intelligence matters. Okay. It's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with bite and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. 
Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Chris, welcome back to Intelligence Matters again. I've actually lost count how many times you've been on the show. But somebody actually said to me, maybe we should rename the show Intelligence Matters with Chris Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it is, it, is, it is really good to have you back. Great. It's glad to be back. I, I think this might be number five, but, but who's counting? <laughs> well, that means, that means you have the record. So, so Chris, as you and I talked about um, when we talked about doing this, I really want to dig in on the Biden administration's approach so far to China and how the Chinese are reading that and how they're responding so far or how you think they're likely to respond. So that's what I want to do. And if that's okay with you, we will plow ahead. Let's do it. Sounds great. And maybe the place to start, Chris, is if you can describe what the Biden administration has said about Uh and what they've said to China Uh so far, as well as what it's actually done with regard to China. Sure. So what are the what have they actually done and said so far? Right. I mean, I think in terms of what they've said so far, it's important to remember, one, um, we're just coming up on 100 days for the administration. So they haven't had a whole lot of time to say too much. Um, obviously, there's other things going on dealing with the uh, COVID challenges here and so on. But I think they have been uh, very direct in putting out a couple of pretty clear articulations so far. And I think there are really two. Um, the first was President Biden's comment, of course, that um, we are preparing for what he called extreme competition with China, which I think is meant to probably both underscore the reality of the situation, given China's increasingly clear signals from its end that that it sees it as such, as an extreme competition uh, for global leadership, as well as probably a more political or some might call it crass effort to show that they'll be just as uh, tough as the Trump administration was on China so as to avoid uh, domestic criticism for for being soft, for example. Um, I think the the second most authoritative uh, statement that we've had was from Secretary of State Blinken uh, in his speech in uh, early March, kind of on U.S. foreign policy writ large, where uh, he seemed to break the relationship into three buckets, where he noted that it will be competitive when it should be, uh, I think he said collaborative when it can be, and adversarial when it must uh, be. So I think that's kind of a, a good summation of of how they're uh, talking about the relationship. In terms of what they've said to China, I think the message has been pretty clear, and that kind of bleeds into your question about what they've actually done. So in that space, I, I think we have seen them send a very clear signal uh, with re- with the use of sanctions, statements, and uh, other measures to show its very strong support for human rights globally. And as that relates to China, that obviously uh, involves the situation of uh, the Uyghur uh, Muslim minority in Xinjiang, uh, Hong Kong, of course. They have reaffirmed our commitment to Taiwan um, in ways that I think some people have thought uh, was surprising and and somewhat consistent with the Trump administration's effort to strengthen um, that relationship. And I think they've sought uh, to regain the trust, I think you could put it, of allies and partners for collective action 
against China. And at home, I think they promised to build U.S. strength, uh, you know, the kind of notion of build back better at home to help prepare for what President Biden called this extreme competition. So, Chris, looking at both the administration's rhetoric and its conversations with the Chinese and its actions, how would you characterize the approach so far? Yeah, I think uh, somewhat like uh, Secretary Blinken's uh, three buckets, they have kind of a three-pronged approach so far. Uh, the first, I think, is that they are thinking about how to respond to China's actions across this full spectrum of, of great power competition. And I think that includes economic components, security, obviously, and what we might call an ideational component, i.e. this notion of competition of systems between the U.S. and China. Um the Chinese are doing a lot in those spaces. So I think it um, makes sense for them to kind of step back and try to think about how to respond there. Um, they are studying, I think, the Trump era policies. We've seen you know, a lot of indications that on various executive orders and so on that the Trump administration put in place, the administration has said, well, we're reviewing those to, to see um, which of them I think they th uh, believe they should maintain. And if they decide they will maintain them, perhaps how those uh, policies might be tweaked so that they might be more coordinated and strategic. I think one of the very fair criticisms of the last administration was that the general message in terms of we need to change how we're interacting with China was right, but the execution was pretty haphazard. And then, as I mentioned uh, earlier, I think they're uh, obviously consulting uh, with allies and partners on how to cooperate, uh, again, as we prepare for this sort of extreme competition. I think the problem with that, though, is that <clears throat> these are sort of passive approaches, um, you know, thinking, studying, and consulting are, are sort of passive words. And the problem is uh, President Xi Jinping, uh, President Biden's uh, counterpart in China, isn't sitting idly by while the administration conducts that kind of thought process or, mm. or navel gazing. Mm. What's motivating the Biden team at this point, do you think? Is it is it trying to get the policy just right or, or are there domestic politics seeping in here? What's, what's your sense? Yeah. I mean, I think uh, a primary motivation obviously is the desire to show that the U.S. Uh, is back in the game after four years of, of Trumpian scorched earth. Um, and that policy is both necessary and noble, I think. But um, I think they're learning that it's not so easy. Uh, Trump's hostility toward even the allies uh, stung and, and raised questions about our credibility and reliability. And I think our disastrous handling of COVID, obviously, and uh, racial justice tensions and other issues make the allies and others, non-allies even in the world, suspicious of, of both sort of our commitment and bandwidth. I mean, you raise a good question with regard to the politics. I think that's a second area that uh, is much less helpful. Uh, thus far, it seems to me the administration is uh, somewhat afraid of its own shadow in terms of fear of domestic criticism uh, of being too soft on China. And I think that's causing itself in some ways to box itself in at home in terms of um, taking positions early on that reduce their flexibility and also might be sending some confusing signals to China uh, about the approach. So uh, just as an example, I thought that um, Secretary Blinken's comments uh, to the Congress ahead of the Anchorage meeting between the Chinese and the U.S. that this was not a uh, strategic dialogue like existed in the in the Biden uh, in the excuse me in the Obama administration seemed almost too defensive. In other words, the fear of mm -hmm. saying, why are you mm -hmm. going back to that old policy? Uh, cause them to, to move in that direction. So Chris, what would you like to see the Biden administration do with regard to putting together its 
strategy, its long-term strategy toward China? Yeah, I think what's the right approach here? Well, I think by a strategy, uh, we need a coordinated policy that recognizes uh, that we must deal directly with China in a bilateral context as part of our effort to win this extreme competition. I think uh, one of the challenges we're facing is that uh, we have what we might call surrogate strategies, um, where we're looking to other policy approaches uh, to try to avoid dealing directly with China. And so that includes, I think, this notion of domestic strengthening. In other words, if we put the money into our infrastructure, um, building semiconductor capacity in the U.S., uh, making sure we're leading technologically through um, some version of industrial policy, that almost that in and of itself will cause the Chinese to just run away because they'll be scared of, of U.S. strength or, or Likewise, this notion of uh, consulting and working with the allies and partners, but we're seeing already that that has limitations. Uh, just this last week, we had the New Zealand foreign minister say that uh, the New Zealand would be uncomfortable having the Five Eyes intelligence cooperative relationship uh, expand uh, to cover additional issues. That's clearly directed at China. Um, I think we saw some very uncomfortable moments uh, last week in the summit between, in the lead up anyway, to the summit between President Biden and Prime Minister Suga of Japan, where clearly the US wanted the Japanese to uh, have a sort of much more throaty statement about Taiwan um, in the joint statement. Uh, there was some passing reference to it. It was the first time since the 60s that it happened, uh, but um, it wasn't as strong as the administration wanted. And I think a strategy- Why do you- Go ahead, sorry. No, 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 please go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I think uh, all, a strategy also starts with ultimately, where do we want to be at some kind of endpoint, right? And then works backwards to fill in the actions to get us there. As good as Secretary Blinken's uh, speech was, this idea of the kind of three buckets can wind up being more of a to-do list uh, approach rather than a strategy. Yeah. Where do you think the limitations on our ability to work with the allies, where does that come from? Well, I think it's a couple of those kind of statements. Where do those kind of statements that New Zealand made come from? Yeah, well, uh, I think in New Zealand's case and, and with a lot of the other allies and partners, it's very clear. And that is uh, China's their largest training partner. Um, and uh, so that obviously the economic challenges that they face there are important. I think in the case of, say, Japan, the message that I take from the joint statement is that, understandably so, Japan is more than willing to continue the close security cooperation we have between our two countries. They're particularly to have us, for example, restate our Article 5 commitment to the defense of, uh, of Japan as that relates to uh, the Senkaku Diaoyu Islands. Um, but what they're not willing to do is engage in too much related to, say, the Xinjiang, certainly anything with regard to the Olympics. You know, we've seen a lot of uh, back and forth about potential boycott for the Beijing Winter Olympics. It's very clear to me that Europe, Japan, pretty much everybody else in the allies and partners community would not support that kind of an action. Is there a Trump legacy here too? Oh, definitely. Yeah, no, without question. I mean, it turns out that uh, four years of scorched earth hurts, <laughs> as I as I mentioned a moment ago. They were they were stung by that, and it's not cost free. You know, the the new administration can't just come in and say, "Hey, we're back," and you know, it's all good again. Um, I think countries are reluctant um, to to not um, sort of to to dive right back in with us uh, as if that period hadn't existed. And I guess if you're if you're one of those countries, you have to say to yourself. Okay, President Biden says the U.S. is back, and maybe that lasts for four years, but what's to stop what happened in 2016 from happening in 2024, 2028? Yes. 
and you don't make right if you're a country you don't make national security policy in four year chunks no and in fact that's that's a critical point so another part of a proper strategy i think is exactly that you need almost ridiculous policy consistency over multiple administrations you know the chinese are talking about 2035 well that's several more elections for us um, you're going to need to have that kind of consistency i think for the allies to really feel okay this is serious yeah i had dinner one night with three chinese intelligence officers chris and they were talking about good and bad millennia, right? A good, a, a good thousand years and a bad thousand right. years. And here we're focused on, you know, we're focused on the next quarter exactly. or politically the next two years, right? Exactly. So Chris, how are Chinese officials reading the Biden administration thus far? Yeah, I think probably they're still getting used to uh, the new administration and trying to uh, draw some conclusions. I think, you know, as you know, I've I've watched this for a very long time. And what we often see with the senior leadership in China is if they come up against something where they're not sure uh, what the right uh, choice is, or it's a, it's a really big issue that they're somewhat um, concerned about tackling, they tend to default to this sort of wait and see approach, right? That would be their sort of official uh, mm-hmm. rhetoric and want to see where we're going to go. Uh, that said, I would just highlight two areas where I think they're drawing some really unhelpful conclusions. I, I think the first one is that they believe that the administration is signaling that it will be every bit as tough as the Trump administration was uh, toward China. And I think in their mind, then that uh, causes them to say, well, we don't really need to change policy. And I, I think it validates the Politburo's ideological conclusion that you know the inevitable conflagration, if you will, between capitalism and socialism has arrived. And this is the time. And I think it also validates all of the tightening measures that President Xi has put in place domestically, and also the kind of aura around unifying around him as the leader. Um, and, and I think he's you know taking huge advantage of that. The second is that I think there might be a risk that they will uh, negatively mirror image the issue of civilian control of the military in the U.S. I mean, I think with the decision to not sort of firmly uh, restate the the principle of uh, civilian control of the military in the U.S. by having another general come in as uh, as uh, Secretary of Defense, mm-hmm. I think that's uh, led the Chinese, where in their system, you know, pow- Mao's famous phrase, "Power grows out of the barrel of a gun." Um, they they worry that this just will um, further inflame the fact that their perception that uh, the U.S. civilian leadership is under the control of a military industrial complex that wants war. I'm concerned that could uh, lead to some uh, destabilizing strategic consequences. That's a great transition. If you could put the current Taiwan tensions into the context of what we've been discussing, how do you think about those? Yeah, I think um, we have to separate probably the activity that we're seeing uh, vis-a-vis Taiwan from the policy, if you will, or, or the uh, the plans and intentions, I guess you could put it, of the, of the Chinese leadership. There's no doubt in my mind that we're seeing a lot more military activity around Taiwan, and it's very concerning. Um, just recently, we had the largest ever um, sort of sortie in terms of numbers of aircraft and, and complexity uh, operating in an exercise around Taiwan that we've ever seen um, as you know, I think in the U.S. there seems to be a growing sense of concern that maybe the Chinese see now as the time um, for them to retake Taiwan, uh, that indeed they really do believe in this uh, narrative that they've been um, 
talking about recently about the uh, East is rising and the West is declining and, and now's the time. I, I think I would just inject a couple of uh, points of caution. I think the first one is that um, while indeed uh, those challenges are happening on the military side, you know, when China decides to do things toward Taiwan, it's never really about what's happening on Taiwan. It's really more about their perception of where we're going. And as I mentioned mm -hmm. earlier, in terms of this fear that the administration is kind of continuing on with the Trump policies, uh, our approach toward Taiwan so far has made them nervous that we're moving ever closer to this idea of maybe abandoning the one China policy. So for example, there's a pretty significant debate, it seems, within the administration about changing our policy of strategic ambiguity. You know, China would see that as very um, unhelpful and, and a move toward breaking with the one China policy. So I think that's the, the message behind what they're doing. I would just highlight as well that while of course, um, retaking Taiwan or ensuring uh, that Taiwan independence doesn't take place, that's really their fundamental uh, goal, um, is certainly very important. And I fully believe they would go to war to prevent that. Uh, they also have this other very important goal, which is they must break through the middle income trap uh, by 2035 in, in their calculation. And um, I, it, I struggle to see how uh, invading Taiwan would help them with that. In other words, you would fundamentally ensure that all other countries in the same way they did after the Tiananmen crackdown would then have to turn against China. And I don't see how that helps them from an economic development point of view. And that goal of breaking through the middle income trap is just as important to them in terms of uh, existential for their survival, I think they think, as the Taiwan issue. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, and we'll be right back with more of a discussion with Chris Johnson. Ah. <sighs> The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. So Chris, I just want to stick on Taiwan for a second here. Are you saying that to some extent, the Chinese actions that we've seen are in response to the debates in the US about how we should handle Taiwan going forward? Absolutely. Yes. And they're trying to do what in doing that? Well, I think they're trying to show us that um, you know, you're approaching the red line, which is the one China policy. Uh, this has always been the be all and end all. This is what allowed us to reestablish relations right, um, in the uh, Cold War period. And um, they see these kind of salami slicing tactics of you know, greater clarity with regard to how we interact, US officials interact with Taiwan diplomats, um, you know, frequent commentary, inviting the, uh, the Taiwan de facto representative in the US to the inauguration formally, you know, all these little bits and pieces as edging ever closer. And the strategic ambiguity one is, is, is really, really big. If we were to change that policy, it's my opinion that it would actually force the Chinese to feel they must do something rather than uh, provide additional clarity about our position. 
And what would that something be in your mind? Well, I, I think uh, it would certainly be uh, very strong rhetoric. I think we could see um, some form of, of military inter- intervention or action under those circumstances. I mean, it was exactly that fear about um, a break with the one China policy when the Taiwan president, uh, Li Donghui, was uh, allowed to visit the United States uh, in the mid-90s that prompted them to do the series of military exercises at that time that they did. And obviously, they have a far more uh, sophisticated and diverse toolkit of, of uh, areas of pressure they can bring to bear on Taiwan now. So this is a very delicate issue. Absolutely. Fundamental. Okay, Chris, let me run through kind of a handful of maybe what will seem to some as disjointed questions, but I want to ask them. So I've heard you talk about the fact that you think we're at a significant inflection point with China. What do you mean by that? Well, I think uh, a couple of things. One, I think uh, we're rapidly approaching a period where um, China's growing strength and capabilities um, are getting to a point where um, it's unclear to me how effective we can be and try to uh, manage those and and uh, and deal with them. You know, I think some would argue we've already let them get too big um, globally, and this goes into the whole debate in the last administration about uh, was it a mistake to let them into WTO, and you know um, how can we make the trade piece you know sort of uh, more complementary. Um, I, I think the the other issue is that in clearly in this area of technology, and uh, as Eric Schmidt pointed out on your recent podcast, the battle for these platforms uh, of technology going forward, whether that that semiconductors, AI, quantum computing, biopharma, that will just generate trillions and trillions of dollars in wealth. Um, you know, the Chinese are making a de- decided effort uh, to come up on us. I was quite struck by uh, Mr. Schmidt's comments that he feels they could be uh, where we are on AI and in a handful of years, not even five. So uh, for all those reasons, I see it as an inflection point. And let's face it, uh, for four years under Trump and arguably even before then, we've just been kind of drifting around. And this is what I uh, mean with regard to it's finally time to have a proper China strategy. If we don't, um, then we're going to miss the boat and we could find ourselves in in a very nasty um, fight with the Chinese. Is there in your mind, and this is, this is a tough question, but is there in your mind a strategy an effective strategy. If we were in the administration and we were sitting around the sit room and we spent hours and hours and hours debating where we should go with China and we had all the intelligence laid on the table and smartest policymakers, is there a strategy that you can envision the United States undertaking vis-a-vis China that would that would fundamentally change the direction of where we're headed? Well, I think uh, that's a tall order, obviously. And, and I have tremendous sympathy for the uh, folks in any administration who are working on this problem. It's uh, it's it's tremendously difficult to grapple with. I would say that uh, the one thing that I've not seen done that I think would be the starting point for that kind of a strategy, and then we develop the pieces afterward, is uh, there needs to be a dedicated effort where we just step back rack and stack what we perceive, you know, using the intelligence as you suggested and our best understanding of it, what are China's global ambitions? Um, And once we have uh, completed that exercise in as objective a manner as we can, we need to look at 
which one of those ambitions can we accept? Um, because I think, or accommodate might be a better word, because we will have to accommodate some. And I think that was the mistake of the previous administration was the notion that we just uh, wouldn't be willing to accommodate any of China's global ambitions. And in my mind, that's a recipe for conflict. And, and which ones can we not? And then I think we need to communicate that to the Chinese at the most senior levels, uh, probably privately is better than, uh, as the Chinese like to call it, microphone diplomacy, um, where on those areas where we can feel we can accommodate them, we make that clear. Um, on those areas where we can't, we tell them that as well. And then we um, set out a series of red lines related to those areas where we don't feel we can accommodate their ambitions. And then we operationalize those red lines with action. Um, and that also is something where I think we've often fallen down. We've said, uh, okay, this is a red line for us. And and then we don't uh, follow through. Uh, Scarborough Shoal um, and, and the Chinese seizure thereof um, in uh, the 2013 is a prime example of that. So as a great transition, because the next question I was going to ask you was about Beijing's ambitions in the world, their objectives in the world. So what are those? And then to your point, which do you think we need to be able to live with and which should we push back on? Yeah. I think uh, uh, their first and foremost objective, if you're the CCP and they're the ones uh, running the show and Xi Jinping, is they want to stay in power. <laughs> and that's a domestic objective, but for them, their foreign policy uh, works around that. I mean, I think something that's very interesting is that in some ways, this is an overstatement, but you'll get the point. Uh, China doesn't really have foreign policy per se. A lot of their foreign policy mm -hmm. is is just extensions of domestic policy. And I actually think we're at risk of, of mirroring that too much uh, with some of the statements the administration has made. But um, so, so therefore, that's number one, obviously, for them. And that drives a lot of what they do. I think in terms of uh, their foreign outlook, their goal is pretty straightforward, which is that they want other countries first in the region, uh, primarily in the region in, in East Asia, but increasingly globally to in the same manner with the same speed with which they would think about how the U.S. might think about something they're about to do. They want them to think about what China <laughs> might think about what they're about to do. That's really mm. the goal. Um, and that involves having a sort of uh, hegemonic position in Asia. I think that's definitely true, being uh, the sort of main power there. Um, and I think fundamentally, as Xi Jinping told us last week in a major speech, um, they want the U.S. to treat them as a great power, as an equal, and they feel that time has come and is now and stop lecturing them and, and, and so on. So on the first, on international influence, is it is it primarily about another country's economic policies and a country choosing a set of economic policies that that further Chinese economic interests? Is that the primary focus of what they want? That's a big part of it. I, I think another big part of it is the security relationships, obviously. You know, when China sees things like uh, the the new the quad structure uh, with ourselves and Japan, Australia, and India developing, they see that as something akin to a, a containment net. So obviously they want to be able to influence that. I mean, I think the economic pressure campaign against Australia is really interesting in this context. Um, you know, most people, including myself, when we look at that, we say, gosh, this seems so terribly counter productive. Why is China doing that? But then we look at a situation where we had the summit of the quad leaders and there was an op-ed prepared in the in the Washington Post and the C word China was, was not mentioned at all. Um, and uh, one wonders if you're sitting in Beijing and uh, you, you're 
thought is this economic pressure campaign on Australia has worked in that manner, i.e. preventing some of that collective action. Um, it's worth the, the reputational negative points we're getting internationally to um, prevent that strategic element from developing. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs. Now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. One more question about the Australia situation, Chris. Is the objective in Beijing's approach to this to send a message to other countries? This is what happens to you if you if you side too closely with the Americans? Is that the message they're sending? I think that's part of it. And I think we've seen that in, in other contexts as well. But I, I think it's uh, to them perhaps strategically more important. I think what they're hoping for, and again, this is an area where maybe that dialectical materialist mindset of theirs doesn't doesn't serve them very well. In other words, if, if you believe in things like uh, historical materialism and the power of material forces and you're China with that market and the growing economic strength you have, your view is if we can get the Australians to crumble, you know, basically with this sustained pressure, think of the huge, not only economic, but also geostrategic uh, waves of benefit mm. that that would redound to us. So I think it's it's arguably a little more uh, malicious or malevolent, you might say, than, than uh, something that simple. And then how important is it to them to spread their, their way of doing things, right? Uh -huh. um, their authoritarianism, their managed capitalism, uh -huh. how important is it to them to spread that around the world? Or is that a secondary interest to them. I think it's very. I think it's very important. I mean, I, I, I think we've seen increasingly. There's this new meme, right? That's that's come through in the in the propaganda and in leadership speeches and so on, and and in the interaction, frankly, between um, Secretary Blinken and Jake Sullivan and his Chinese counterparts in Anchorage, which is, hey, not everybody in the world subscribes to the so-called U.S.-led rules-based international order, or that um, the rules of the road internationally should be um, devised and supervised by a handful of countries. Um, you know, this is a, a, a clear message. Another one is this notion they have of, you know, the global situation as witnessing uh, changes unseen in a century. You know, that's sort of code for uh, it's time that the power equation geopolitically uh, is changing. Um, I think what the, the main goal there is, obviously, to kind of make the world safe for the Chinese Communist Party, in other words. If you can normalize, you know, its behavior and, uh, you know, grapple with the Americans in terms of global narrative competition. I mean, I think one of the uncomfortable parts for us, and I think this is a reason why the last administration, the Trump administration, reacted so strongly to this kind of notion of ideational competition is that we haven't had a global narrative competitor for 30 years, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's made us a little bit lazy, maybe. And now we see this, it's back, and we see it as uh, particularly menacing and threatening when maybe it's less so. So Chris, I think there's a a view out there which I want you to, to react to that that China's aggressiveness mm -hmm. and maybe even its objectives, right, are all 
Xi Jinping, mm-hmm. right? And I want you to kind of react to that. And is it just one guy here or is the entire leadership, you know, bought into the global ambitions and the the way to pursue them? Yeah. Uh, I, my sense is uh, that it's foolish to say that this is all about uh, Xi Jinping. I, I, I think there's no doubt that in the same way that President Trump acted as an accelerant for certain trend lines uh, in that were leading toward um, trouble, if you will, or a deterioration in the U.S.-China relationship, Xi Jinping has acted as an accelerant on the Chinese side. Um, there is discussion and debate, as there always is in any system with, you know, it's important for us to remember sometimes, you know, they have 1.4 billion people. It's a, a complex and, and messy place. Right. Um, and so obviously there are different views, but I think it's very dangerous. And we had this uh, longer telegram piece that was uh, written, uh, I believe, earlier this year, you know, sort of suggesting if we could just get rid of Xi Jinping, we'd have a more rational yeah. grouping. Um, I can assure you that on policies like Hong Kong, uh, on policies like Xinjiang, uh, these have wide support, certainly within the leadership. And um, surprisingly, sometimes I think for we Americans amongst the uh, the nationalist, increasingly nationalistic Chinese populace. So Chris, this kind of raises the point about she's political standing at home, yeah. right? And the other thing you read is she's in trouble. There's strong opposition. Mm-hmm. What's your thinking on that? Again, I, I find it kind of silly. I, I can't see any, um, and I don't think you need, you know, um, clandestine intelligence <laughs> to tell you this. The, the positive observable fact makes pretty clear to me, and I think really most other observers, um, that um, his uh, control is undisputed. He's clearly the most powerful leader uh, since Mao. I would argue a lot of people say, Dung, I think it's Mao, and he's probably going to cap that off again next year um, at the next party Congress. But, but there are a couple of issues to highlight. And the first is, yeah, he's uh, large and in charge. There's no question. Um, he's got control of, in my mind, and this has been his uh, political genius, if you will. Uh, he knows that to succeed in a system that he sees as uh, operating by very Hobbesian <laughs> rules, that you must control the key levers of power. And that's the party apparatus, uh, the propaganda system, and the military and security services. And he has that. But the reality is next year, he's going to be trying to do something that no recent leader has done, which is to try to serve you know, this third and, and maybe fourth and <laughs> who knows how many terms. And that will generate some bargaining and some opposition, I think, within within the system. So that's important. I think probably the uh, more likely things that will um, cause problems for him, though, are uh, non-inside uh, baseball politics stuff. One is, you know, China has a huge demographic problem. It was just highlighted recently that um, I believe it's by 2035, the number of sort of, you know, child bearing women is going to um, decline dramatically. You know, they have all these negative aspects of the longstanding one-child policy. So what does that mean for the size of their consumer market, for their ability to field this giant military they're building, you know, et cetera? And then uh, also a very important one is this whole issue of how they're handling this crackdown in China's uh, domestic finance sector. I, you know, we have a lot of concerns out there about uh, bond defaults, uh, about uh, you know, will the government continue as it always has to uh, maintain that implicit guarantee of all this debt that's circulating around in China? Um, you know, when she gave his speech at the last party congress, when he renewed his tenure, kind of set out these three tough battles that they wanted to accomplish. One was poverty alleviation, another was improving the environment, and the third was this kind of crackdown on. On, on financial uh, risk. Um, poverty alleviation check, they declared victory on that <laughs> late last year. Obviously, the environment is 
getting better all the time. But on this financial risk piece, they seem to keep running into problems. And that includes the challenges of recent with Alibaba and Tencent and their so-called platform economy and the unfairness there and so on. So there's a risk that she's political imperative to uh, tighten, tighten, tighten on this financial risk thing could cause them to make some mistakes that would have huge uh, conflagration uh uh, consequences for them economically. And then Chris, we're, um, we're running out of time and I want to ask you one more question and it's probably the most unfair question I've asked you. <laughs> Where do you think we're going to be with China in five to 10 years? Yeah. Um, increasingly my gut is not a good place. <laughs> you know, I think, um, we, I've always uh, been pretty optimistic. I think that there's a there's a baseline uh, there, but in all aspects, uh, it was interesting in, in talking to um, Chinese friends recently. Uh, you know, there's a real fear, and I think obviously some of that's drummed up by uh, the the propaganda of the party, you know, and so on. But um, you know, there's real fear about safety if you're a Chinese person uh, coming here now with these sort of anti Asian attacks that we've been having in the U.S. Um, and I think that has implications for not only the People to people connective tissue that has you know sustained us through rough patches in the past, um, but also for the enthusiasm of young and very bright Chinese students who want to come to the U.S. and and, and study here and often stayed and and helped us build these great tech and other companies um, that we have. Uh, I think this issue of you know, again, uh, what uh, Eric Schmidt said in your podcast, you know, it does look increasingly like we're moving toward a bifurcated internet system where there are two camps. Yeah. And I think that too, you know, just puts us in a very, very difficult situation. And I don't see uh, the sort of rhetoric between the two sides uh, getting better anytime soon. And, and I think, you know, it's it's very clear to me that to some degree, uh, Xi Jinping and his leadership style has been part of the problem. And I think our dysfunction has been uh, as big a part of the problem. Chris, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us again. Your insights are are always absolutely fascinating. And I know my listeners uh, look forward to having you on. In fact, some people send notes saying, when is Chris coming back on? So <laughs> That's always uh, my pleasure. So you have a following here on Intelligence Matters. Thank you so much. My pleasure. That was Chris Johnson. I'm Michael Morell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. Intelligence Matters is sponsored by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. This show is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Jake Rosen, Paulina Smolinski, and Ashley Armstrong. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS Audio. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey.